What is up, wrestling fans, and welcome to this special recap edition of the Paul Heyman SmackDown podcast, where we're not covering a specific episode, we're just going to be covering the entire journey, our most recent journey back in time to the period where Paul Heyman was the head writer of SmackDown. I am your host, as always, Callum Wiggins, and joining me, as per usual, Robert DeFelice. I can't believe we're now down two journeys in the DeLorean, and that also means like we're down two basically almost like a full year of doing these and it was a great journey i just can't believe it's over i'm a little bit worried about that delorean as well because back to the future one and two were great and then back to the future three happened so i'm a little bit a little bit so are we covering the western territory next don't don't give me ideas at this point (laughs) well we haven't we can't really decide too much on that front we have ideas obviously in the pipeline just so people are aware of we do we are planning on doing more trips back in time we love the retro series because it's so much easier to cover that than and try and escape what the current state of the world is especially in wrestling especially in wwe uh so that's something that we do intend to keep doing the only issue is whether peacock allows us to do that yeah and they will they're especially because honestly this is a problem that only affects americans Mm. because america I mean, yeah, and we'll find a way around it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll figure out ways of doing it instead. But of course, we'd like to invite you, as per usual, if you have been on this journey, if you've been with us throughout this journey, then obviously, thank you very much for being here. We do appreciate you listening to basically all the content we're putting out, not just the special main events and show reviews. Just joining us, fellow fans of retro wrestling. Uh, we invite you to leave a comment below if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening through one of the other podcast feeds, then, of course, uh, leave a rating or a review on YouTube. Obviously, like the video, share the video if you feel inclined to do so. Um, there's obviously no link in the description to an episode of SmackDown because we're not reviewing an episode of SmackDown on this one. But there is the whole playlist of every single episode of the Paul Heyman SmackDown. So if you're starting right here at the very end, then you can always go back to the very beginning and find out what the fuss was all about. So and it was a good fuss, you know, like this is a journey where I think for both of us, you're playing on the very early days of our fandom and the very formative years of our fandom. And for the most part, it put a lot into perspective. You know, I don't know if you got the same feeling like this era really shaped what we're watching on TV today. And it also highlighted a lot of what is missing today oh absolutely there's a lot of things that we can take from this era which is very good obviously there's a lot of things from this era that were bad as well and we're glad that they're like they're stuck back in that period of time but that's basically what this episode is going to be doing it's just going to be going over some thoughts and uh like handing out not so much some awards but handing out some just like recapping some of our favorite matches and moments and segments and stuff along those lines and also some of our least favorite stuff um, and also going to be throwing out a few stats that I picked up over like the course of the journey. And yeah, just essentially shooting the ship for an hour or so about what our favourite and least favourite moments of this entire journey were and what we learned, what we're happy about, what we're not so happy about, all that stuff. First of all, I want to say, just as an overarching thing, very, very happy with the way this series has gone in terms of just output and consistency. I feel like the previous journey we did, obviously 2001 and Wrestling Odyssey, was it covered a, a grander scheme of things in terms of like a whole year's worth of review. 
but it was one episode a month so it was they were long episodes but it meant that we had a bit more spaced out between every single one of them this one we've had to be on it every single week the whether it's reviewing it w- watching the episode of smackdown in question collecting notes going through the observer and stuff like that it's it's a slog but we managed to get about 40 episodes out of this which i think is pretty good going yeah i thought this was uh great stuff and i really have to put you over for that because you you know you put in a lot of legwork for this we talk all the time about i you know mine and tony's having a busy wrestling schedule but this is so fun to know that you're working with somebody who's going to do the legwork and loves the era and it's just it's just a really fun journey and it covers a unique time in our lives because a lot of this was just built off the back of the pandemic off the back of hey there's no fans these shows are boring and you came through with this idea and it was just such a a blast yeah well it's glad to have you on board on the journey as well it's always good to have someone to bounce the ideas off especially someone who is watching at the same exact time basically shares the same reverence for this period of history and hopefully this also unlocked a bit of like nostalgia for people that remember this point in time when like who were back watching smackdown in these periods of time or maybe they haven't even heard of this i don't say never heard of it they're pretty sure they knew the smackdown was going on in 2002 but have never gone back and maybe they've decided oh might want to check it out instead because it is worth checking out on the whole i think that's one of the general messages we can take out of this is that this was fun to do. Yeah. And I think, above all else, when WWE is good, it's really good. Like, when everything is clicking, like you see when you see The Rock come back, or you see a great match like, you know, uh, The Vengeance Triple Threat. When they were clicking, there's nothing better. Absolutely, and so that's what we're just going to cover here. So I guess I have to start out with asking you, Rob, what is kind of some of, if not, well, let's, let's say, the theme uh, lesson that you're going to take out of this journey? That Paul Heyman is great in putting the talent in right positions, but he can never get full control because, one... It's always going to dive into some issues with Vince and or Steph or whoever in power. And two, I think if left to his own devices, he gets very, like, too, pardon the pun, extreme too quickly. Like, we saw a lot of stuff in this journey with Dawn and Tori. We saw a lot of stuff when he was running Raw, quite frankly, with Lana and, you know, Liv Morgan. He always likes throwing those wild things at the wall, but ultimately they end up adding less to the show and maybe even taking away from the positives. No, I can totally see that side of it. I think Heyman appeals to a very obvious demographic of people, which was basically what made ECW such a, a niche cult um, audience, like it made it such a phenomenon in a very small sector of people. He appeals to... Like his booking appeals to the 18 to 35 male demographic. Or maybe even younger than the male side, but it's definitely a male demographic that he appeals to. But I think yeah, nowadays it's... I think nowadays he's more he's more open to it because you see him doing like work with the women's wrestlers and stuff like that. He knows what the 
the score is now. It wouldn't it wouldn't fly in the same way as ECW did in their treatment of the women. Right. And I mean, he knows that I think even though we look back on that now and see that as sexism, he knows that you know getting women on TV in any capacity was empowering to a degree. Especially like for that for those times where a woman in a lead role was still like, oh wow, you know, there might only be two or three leading ladies in Hollywood. So it was still kind of an adjustment period. Yeah, absolutely. I think in terms of what I would take most out of this series, uh, outside of just like Paul Heyman's writing ability, which I was pretty much uh, like, I, I knew how good of a booker and a writer he could be. So there, there was nothing that was out of question with that. In my mind, it's not like he um, opened my eyes to how great Heyman was because I kind of knew it overall. But my biggest takeaway is funny enough, you can tell a lot more story in a lot of shorter matches. Yeah. And it makes every move count. And it really gets into maximizing your minutes, you know? Yeah, obviously I do appreciate the fact that wrestlers now get more time to work and tell stories. And a lot of time that like, they have produced some really good matches. But I feel like it sometimes is a bit too much. Like, you don't always have to be doing 10, 15 minutes per match but second of all you shouldn't be doing too many matches that go through commercial breaks which they do nowadays it just doesn't work as well and then that's one vince russoism that i really do appreciate he said i never wanted to book a match to go through a commercial break because it tells you that the action doesn't matter yeah so pretty much not not comprehensively but for the most part throughout this journey there's always been there are about four or five matches per show that were Somewhere between, somewhere in the remit between two minutes and five or six minutes. And then there was usually one match that would go about 10 to 15 minutes. And that's kind of, that works. I don't think, yeah. I think nowadays you probably, people would expect more matches to go towards that 10 minute level. But I, essentially, there's so many commercial breaks that it means that you only really see three or four minutes either side anyway. So. What I don't like about the cards now that really stood out to me on this show, they were still building, man. Cards opened with the, like, they they built to the crescendo rather than, and the first match is one of the matches that you paid the most money for, and now we're going to hit you with an hour of filler, and then we're going to give you another one. Like, I like when the card builds. Yeah, absolutely. I also appreciate the fact that there was mixing up of the formula. It's not your typical start the show with a 10 to 15 minute promo, which has become the the absolute trend in WWE TV nowadays. It's OK, well, sometimes we're going to kick off with a match, sometimes we're going to kick off a segment, sometimes we're going to do something a little bit experimental, like this these weird video packages with Stephanie McMahon in front of production tech monitors and stuff like that. Not all of them worked, but it it was it was it was a, like a good variety of stuff. It wasn't cookie cutter formula right and i think when you get into the cookie cutter formula it's it's when wrestling starts to get bad when it's too many writers and it's too many people who are just trying to contribute to the show and get their own segment on rather than just building towards the overall purpose of putting talent over that's when it gets bad yeah, so there's obviously a lot more to cover. We obviously did a 
huge number of episodes in regards to this, but let's start with let's start with talking a little bit about the rating side of things because it's something that we always talked about in the series so far. It comes as no surprise if you've been following week to week that SmackDown overall trounced Raw completely. Uh, just going to check out here. So SmackDown won approximately, let me just check. So 37 weeks we covered, Raw won eight of those weeks. There were four ties, and that means that SmackDown, just doing some basic maths there, got won 25 of the weeks in the ratings of the 37. I mean, that's that's amazing. You know, and they deserve it. They won, what is that, directly a third of the weeks? Or two thirds of the weeks, it, it'll be around. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost exactly two thirds. Yeah, I mean that's that's fantastic, and it's all due to the fact that SmackDown was presenting new, and they were presenting fresh. You know, I mean, I love Monday Night Raw. I'm a Raw guy, but and Triple H is one of my favorites. But when you really break it down, and you look at Triple H versus Steiner and Van Dam, and it, it just wasn't the best output. No, there there is a sign to be saying that SmackDown was the place to go to find even new wrestlers or wrestlers that had got a new lease of life attached to them. So you had the blend of people that had been there for a while. So Edge had been there for a while, and the Gre- and uh, Eddie Guerrero had been there for a while, and Chris Benoit and Kurt Angle. They just felt like bigger deals on SmackDown. And then you blend that in with, obviously, you have, like, the real staples, like The Undertaker and The Big Show in there. And Big Show gets a new lease of life coming over to SmackDown after being treated like a job or on Raw for several months. But then you have new fresh faces turning up. We have John Cena. This is the formative months of John Cena we covered throughout this entire journey. You have Rey Mysterio coming in for the first time and him just lighting things up in the Cruiserweight division. Jamie Noble's a really pretty much fresh face in the WWE side of things, and he was given a lot of character development and treatment, at least very early on in the journey. You have um, Team Angle coming in towards the end, and they're, they're as fresh faced as you can possibly get in this side of things. And again, it's not always perfect. You had Bill DeMott as well, but it's like, but right. at least they were trying with new people or they were doing something different with the old characters they had. Yeah, and I think that's something that, again, you can't say for nowadays. Nowadays, and I've harped on this a lot in recent weeks across the board, you don't just book things and go, well, that means it's working, that means they're over. You know what I mean? Like, for example, the the WWE Tag Team Championship Tournament, they didn't just go okay, well, we're going to put these belts on Billy and Chuck, and it's great, and SmackDown has a tag division now, and that means it's over. They spent months taking literal world championship caliber competitors and putting them in this tournament to build these championships, make them mean something, before eventually, yes, you get to the point where they're just tag titles and, you know, John Cena and B-Squared are fighting for them. But they made them mean something in the autumn months. And that's something I don't think wrestling across the board does now. They're just like, hey, we're going to do this. And isn't that great because it's historic? Okay. I think there was still strategy here. And I think strategy is gone now. I I think that's a fair point to be made. 
Uh, speaking of championships, let's have a look at the um, champions that we had to we got to enjoy during this entire journey. So we had five WWE champions throughout this uh, journey. Uh, the Undertaker was the first of these. He reigned from June the 27th all the way to Vengeance uh, 2002. It was taken over by The Rock. He then reigned through to SummerSlam. Brock Lesnar then took it over for the longest period of time in the journey, uh, 84 days. He was a WWE champion. Uh, the Big Show then after was the one that defeated Brock Lesnar, ended his undefeated streak, and now we end the journey with Kurt Angle as the WWE champion. Now, I think how do five you, really big names. Five huge names. How do you feel about shorter championship reigns, especially having looked back on this journey? I think there's something to be said. I'm not saying that you should have a blanket approach either way. I don't think every WWE champion should hold the title for a year or anything on those lines. Having said that, I feel like some of these reigns are too short, but I think some of that was circumstantial. The Undertaker had reigned quite a long time. I'd say like a long time. He reigned since Judgment Day, so his reign was almost like around about 100 days when he uh, let it go. Uh, the Rock's one was very circumstantial. If you have The Rock for a little while, you're going to give him the WWE title, then he's going to leave. That's basically how it works. Um, Brock Lesnar's one is surprisingly short, considering it was his first reign, and considering he only really feuded with two guys over the title. I so, think the point to that being, they were still in an era where Rock and Austin are the measuring stick, mm. and they were never champion for a long time. Rock is a seven-time world champion, and I think four or five of those are within a year, year and a half. He's an eight-time world champion. Well, I think... Oh, okay. I said seven. Uh, this, was, this, was his, this was his seventh world right, title. Right? I, was, yeah. I always forget the fact that he came back and did win it one more time. Yeah. This is his final time as, like, a quote-unquote full-time guy. And I feel like nowadays they're so focused on, well, CM Punk was champion for 434 days, and that was a huge thing. Everybody needs to be champion for a long time. Now... And I think they told that story real well with The Miz, where it's like, he's a shitbag, and he's champion for eight days. And I'd like to see, especially after going on this journey, a return to, hey, the title can change hands at any point in time. That doesn't mean you always hot potato it. But if you let people know that Vengeance might be a B-show in your mind, Armageddon might be a B-show in your mind, but it might actually produce a new WWE champion. Yeah, I, I can understand both points. I still think that, not as a general rule, but I do like having long title reigns because it makes the belt feel more prestigious and it helps the guy feel more prestigious. But I think when you have those five names that we rattled off, you don't really need to make them more prestigious. The only one that really needed a decent long reign is Brock Lesnar, and he would get one in the months going ahead. So Right, and the final three names, they're Big Show... Angle and Lesnar will dominate the entirety of 2003. Exactly. Uh, over into the WWE Tag Team Championships, the titles that were introduced during this journey. Uh, four title holders, Kurt Angle and Chris Benoit, the first ones that only held it for 18 days, but this was during the period of just switching, well, I say switching the belts up, but switching between the three teams that were defining tag team wrestling at this point in time. So Kurt Angle, Chris Benoit, lose it to Edge and Rey Mysterio in that excellent two out of three falls tag team match, which we'll probably discuss when we come to mentioning our favourite matches and things like that. 
Then they lost it to Los Guerreros in Survivor Series, who held it for the longest period of time before dropping it to Team Angle a couple of weeks before the end of our journey. I think that's amazing that these belts were just created and there were four champions. Mm. Like, again, it makes it seem like, yeah, you can make an argument. It's downing on the prestige a little bit. But damn it, if everything isn't important and worth watching. Like, Team Angle just wins the belt on an episode of SmackDown after just coming in. That's important. That's like, oh, shit, maybe I should tune into SmackDown. I, I'm a big fan of that. We also had the WWE World Tag Team Championships for a little while before they were seem- seemingly the, made onto the exclusive to the Raw brand. So we got to see Billy and Chuck. We got to see Billy and Chuck lose the championships to Hulk Hogan and Edge. In, a, in one of our earliest journeys. To the Un-Americans. Yeah, and then yeah, lose it to the Un-Americans uh, at Vengeance a couple of uh, weeks later. And yeah, we get to see Lancelot and Christian before they drop the titles too. Before they trade, get traded over as part of like uh, a trade between Raw and SmackDown. And then they're by SummerSlam, they're Raw exclusive, and that's where you have the SmackDown tag titles come to fruition soon afterwards. But I think got to see that as well. The amazing thing there is Hulk Hogan having just like matches on TV that are for tag team titles. It's such an under discussed thing. But it was a lot of fun. Hogan was over. On this journey, we'll we'll get to it, but like this reaffirmed how big of a deal Hulk Hogan is. Talk about the Cruiserweight Championship, something that's, again, something that nowadays is very much underplayed. But at this point in time, it's not like the Cruiserweights were super, super over, but they had a role to play in this entire journey. So that's uh, Jamie Noble. The longest reigning champion across this entire journey for us. 143 wow. days as a 143 days from the day that we started as a cruiserweight champion. He was actually champion for a couple of weeks before that because he won it at King of the Ring. Um, Billy Kidman soon afterwards with 98 days as champion. So actually, he's the second longest person to hold a title in this entire journey as well. You know what's amazing about that is we saw them every week. Mm-hmm. And they, they felt like players every week. I mean, you knew... It's Billy Kidman. It's not going to be like, oh, wow, he might pin Brock Lesnar. But it was, it felt important when he was on TV. He had fun matches with Kurt Angle. And, you know, he teamed with Chris Benoit and had a pretty decent tag team title match. Like, I enjoy the depth of this roster and how people got, you know, like, okay, they may not be. Hall of Fame guys, but if you were watching this era, Jamie Noble was a gem. And how can you not be a fan of this guy? Billy Kidman, same thing. Uh, Tajiri was fun when he was in the ring. Nunzio, who came in late to the journey, was pretty fun to watch. And obviously, I mean, Ray will carry it, and he's the best cruiserator of all time, but it, it was a fun division, and I'm glad that they had longer title reigns for these guys because they were more of the work rate championship. So for them to hold it for so long speaks to their ability bell to bell. And of course, the, finally, the person to hold it, we'll be talking about probably a little bit later on in the show, Matt Hardy, of course. But we, yes. will be, we will be mentioning him because I'm sure we both have a lot to say about that. 
Um, other two two our championships also appeared only briefly, of course, on the SmackDown side of things. We had the women's championship for a short period. Uh, Molly Holly um, mm. held it. She was the only woman to actually defend it on SmackDown or have it appear on SmackDown. She actually defended it twice on SmackDown. Against Nidia, right? Nidia and Tori Wilson were the two people that she defended it against. You know what? Molly Holly, 2021 WWE Hall of Famer. Yep. Hell yeah. I She deserves it. She's so good, like I said. A saint among an industry of sinners. And I'm very happy to see her get her recognition. Uh, the one thing that we did not have on this journey, Callum, mm. was a mid-card championship. And that is one of the standout flaws of this era. Was uh, Along the journey, they got rid of the IC title in October, and they wouldn't bring the U.S. title in until July. Well, you do say that we did briefly have a mid-card championship because Chris Benoit was drafted over SmackDown as the right. mid-card champion. That is correct. But it, it wasn't like... They were very much getting rid of these belts, and I think, like, overall... Big miss. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a good reason why in 2003 they decided, yeah, we kind of need this belt, and we also need the United States Championship to come over to SmackDown as well. They just decided there's just too many people not having enough stuff to do. And again, some people would say, like, championships are glorified props or anything like that, but they are easy storyline devices once if you use them correctly. And they're glorified props. Now I'll grant you, but like, we need we need those props. You know? t- we- yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Championships are the most important props. I put it that way. But it's just a case of like, so if you use it incorrectly, it just becomes so obvious that they're props where you don't really want them to feel like that. You want them to feel special. So. Right. So let's talk about some uh, match numbers. Because we have some interesting things to discuss in that front, uh, mainly of which, like the people that appeared on in matches the most. So you know this because I to- told you it right at the start of the journey, and you basically you were you were shocked as all hell about it. But <laughs> but the person who actually had the most matches on SmackDown across this entire journey, surprisingly enough, and I'll, I'll put this with a little caveat: is the fact that I intention I intended for this journey to end. On February the twenty seventh, two thousand three, we did it a week. Li- we decided to go a week later, so these stats are a little bit out of date. So there might be some inaccuracies in that regard. So bear with me on that front. But the top one we had, at least for the in- original duration of the journey, is Rikishi. That's so crazy. Rikishi had thirty three matches across this uh, journey. To me, like that is. When you told me that in the beginning of this journey back in the summer, I was like, that doesn't feel right because he's not a major player. But as this journey went on, I've said it a few times, I wish they would have given him like a title match or something. I mean, it it goes to say something in the fact that we were watching stuff for 36. Well, this is covering 36 weeks and he was wrestling on 33 of them. Uh, granted, of course, one of those uh, two matches on, on the same night that he had, one with Eddie Guerrero and one with Chris Benoit. So add that caveat, but he was essentially wrestling 32 weeks out of 36. Pretty good going. That's a great, you know, like it's just, it proves to me you can't doubt these utility players. Alongside that, the uh, second place, joint second place, 
were Chris Benoit and Edge with 32 matches apiece. A little bit more believable, those two, I guess. Yeah, because they were featured heavily. Uh, we have in... Just check scanning over my stuff again. Um, into like fourth place, because obviously you have two people in joint second. So fourth place, you have Kurt Angle, 31 matches. Um, uh, again, you would expect so. Yeah, very believable. Uh, fifth place, Eddie Guerrero with 30 matches. Okay. Um, see, go sixth place, Rey Mysterio, 25. Takes a little bit of a drop after that, but 20, 25 from 30 is not too bad. Mysterio was injured for a short period of time as well. So, And uh, again, these are all the major players of the brand and a major utility guy in Rikishi. Seventh place, John Cena. Yeah, I can see that. Because he was still a big deal when I, like Undertaker was still the champion. There was a unified champion. So we have um, eighth place, uh, joint eighth place. Uh, Matt Hardy and Brock, Les- Brock Lesnar and Billy Kidman. Wow. All I'm surprised Kidman matches. didn't do more. In terms of like, more, more matches or just more as a Just like bit? more matches. Yeah. Because yeah, I, I felt like he was one of those utility guys like Rikishi that we saw a lot. I don't think he was used very early on in the journey because he wasn't really part of the Cruiserweight scene at that point. It was or at the real start of the Cruiserweight journey for us. It was Hurricane, Jamie Noble, Tajiri... Like Billy Kim will come in every now and again, but he was kind of just like the extra person if you needed him. Right. He didn't really come to the forefront of the cruiserweight scene until he, he was being positioned to win the title. Um, that so that's kind of like the top ten people. Yeah, and people that's a like. good top ten. And Billy Kidman, just to round that out, was involved in several really good tag team matches. And there was that match going up to SummerSlam with Kurt Angle that I think probably won't ever get a lot of play because it's just a random match on a SmackDown, but it showed what they had in Kidman. There's only one person across, at least on the male side of things, that had only one match across the entire journey, which is Brian Kendrick in the match against Kurt Angle. Uh, yeah. We can't even throw Paul Heyman in that list? I guess we can throw Paul Heyman in now. Again, covering that match. Oh, that's right, things. yeah. But, uh, but yeah, Paul Heyman could definitely be part of that list as well. Uh, originally, there are other people that only had one match, but they also had a second match on the March ones. That's Johnny Stamboli and uh, Rhino. So they had two matches across the entire journey. Right at the very end, basically the last two weeks, had those matches. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, there's a few other interesting things. Like, I mean, Hulk Hogan only had seven matches across the entire journey on SmackDown. I think that's incredible. For Hulk Hogan, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> Jamie Noble, who you'd probably expect to have more, may only have 19 matches. Hmm. But he was kind of dropped off the face of the earth after he'd lost the title. He lost the belt, yeah. Uh, the Undertaker only had eight matches, but he, of course he was out of commission for a little while. And Undertaker was really already in a position where he wasn't wrestling on a weekly basis. It's a funny like, situation. He... Like, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. I was going to say, it's a funny situation that um, the same people that had the people that had the same number of matches as the Undertaker on this journey is quite an interesting one. So, The Hurricane. Okay. Big Show. All right. Shelton Benjamin. Okay. Uh, I'm just checking any other ones. Uh, uh, Mark Henry. Wow, I forgot about Mark Henry. Crash Holly. Charlie Haas. Well, that makes sense. All had 
Yeah, all had eight matches in this journey, as well as the Undertaker. I can't recall watching eight Crash Holly matches. I know it's, is... it's it's pretty weird to think. Yeah, but yeah, they yeah. just they managed to put eight together with him and Undertaker. He had like eight matches on SmackDown as well. So now you're on for Undertaker. You're counting the television match, right? Yeah, the, I mean, I mean, like, I mean, he wrestles on pay per views and stuff. Oh yeah, of course he does. And actually, in general, now he had nine because again, if you're counting the second, the last March when he had that match with the A Train as well, so it's nine in general, but it's still very close to all these guys. Yeah, that was your favorite match on the journey, right, Cal? Oh yeah, we'll we'll talk about that as well. <laughs> uh, over on the women's side of things, of course, the person that had the most matches was Tori Wilson. Eleven matches for her in the journey. Wow. Yep. Wrestled uh, more than the yeah, she did. Uh, also wrestled more. Weird wrestled, thing. wrestled the same amount as the Undertaker. Nidia in second place, nine matches. That's also very weird. Uh, third place, funny enough, join is both Molly Holly and Dormarie. Two matches each. That sounds like the opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, Dormarie only had two matches on SmackDown this entire journey. It's quite kind of odd considering how much TV time that she took up. That she had she had one match I believe in October after they did those initial bikini matches with Tori and stuff like that and then she had the um had that uh, bra and panties Valentine's Day thing those were the two matches I love that we can count those as matches we can count the other ones and then the at the bottom two women had only one match on the entire journey that is Stacy Keebler against Tori Wilson naturally and Fabulous Moolah against the Big Show. That's that is awesome. I love that match just because it's like it's so out there. It's you wouldn't believe it if you saw it. In terms of uh, authority figures, obviously we had Stephanie McMahon as the general manager throughout the journey, and we had Vincent Mans popping up every now and again. I uh, did not. This is a weird journey for Steph. Steph felt important and irrelevant, like. I guess it's better that she wasn't in everybody's face, except for Eric Bischoff when she was like in the very beginning of the journey where she was always in Bischoff's face. But once they got rid of that, they had nothing for her almost. Yeah, I mean, we had the um, on the manager side of things, Paul Heyman was the only real out and out manager and obviously did that role as well as he obviously would do anything pretty much. I thought this was a unique manager run for him because he was so much more animated as opposed to in later years where he was just kind of, yeah, Brock Lesnar's the undisputed reigning defending World Heavyweight Champion. Here he's all over the place. He's crying. He's screaming. He's bouncing around. It's a lot of fun. And on the commentary and announcer side of things, we got to see a variety of characters, uh, Ernest the Cat Miller for a hot minute. That's so weird. Uh, Josh Matthews turning up at the very end to replace Mark Lloyd, everyone's favorite. Yeah, Mark. I was never so happy to see Josh Matthews in my life. We had uh, Justin Roberts in both uh, a couple of times on, as the announcer, along with Tony Chimmel. That is pretty cool, because I wonder how long he was on the payroll. And obviously the main two people on the commentary headset, Michael Cole and Taz. Uh, Michael Cole was good here. I don't care what anybody says. Michael Cole was a, a fun time, fun to watch. Yeah, much better in this commentary position. And Taz is Taz. And it's uh, with Taz, it's really you either love him or you hate him. And I, I kind of love him, really. 
Yeah, and here he hadn't gotten to the caricature point yet that he would eventually get. You know, like head scissors on the head mm. and Yandag Yassi and let the pigeons loose. He hadn't gotten there yet. In terms of ancillary characters, there's only really three, I think, that were any of any real note um, that didn't actually wrestle any kind of matches or anything on those lines. You've got people like Scott Steiner appeared for a hot second to tease that he was going to join SmackDown, but ended up not doing it. Right. You have, uh, you have Red Dog, who appeared for like two episodes as John Cena's new heavy and then disappeared entirely. Well, he had to go do the three-minute white boy challenge. And then, of course, I think the main outside character that we had throughout this entire journey is Al Wilson. Ah, Lord. God bless Al Wilson. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got... Well, he let's say he got the absolute most out of his 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about main events, really, because that's what everyone's really shooting for. We had a grand total of 22 wrestlers that uh, competed in the main events across this uh, series. Actually... Well, now it's 23 if you count um, Paul Heyman as well. So, essentially, the one that, the person that got the most main event matches was Chris Benoit with 17. A little surprising. Uh, followed by Albert Kurt Angle with 16. Then it was... Um, less surprising, because obviously he's Kurt Angle, and he's, you know, he was in the main event scene a lot towards the end. You have Edge with 10. Then uh, Brock Lesnar with 9. Eddie Guerrero with six, Rey Mysterio and Undertaker with five apiece. Then four apiece shared between The Rock, Big Show, Charlie Haas, and Shelton Benjamin. Those, you'll never see those names in the same category ever again. Three for Kiss Jericho right at the start of this journey. He had, he had three main events in the first five weeks of this show. I think that makes sense. John Cena had two main events. Wow, he gets on this list. Yeah, one, one very early on when he teamed with The Undertaker against Kurt Angle and Chris Jericho. And then one towards the very end, a uh, match against uh, Brock Lesnar. Wow. So, yeah. Well, obviously that Lesnar match was the best thing that could have happened to him. Uh, we also have um, Matt Hardy got two as well. Uh, A-Train got two. Hulk Hogan got two as well. Matt Hardy, A-Train, and Hulk Hogan. Mm. You ever think that they would be in the... <laughs> That's so crazy. And the, and the individuals that got a solitary main event match, we have Rikishi. Uh, which was, funny enough, a six-man tag. The Undertaker, Edge, and Rikishi against Kurt Angle, Chris Benoit, and Eddie Guerrero. Uh, have Billy Gunn, Billy and Chuck got one for the tag team match with... Um... Actually, that wasn't a tag team match with um, uh, Edge and uh, Hulk Hogan. It was actually a tag team match with Kurt Angle and Chris Benoit. Wow. Yeah, right towards the um, the end of their run as a tag team. The greatest tag team in WWE history. Uh, Tajiri has a single main event when he tag-teamed with Brock Lesnar against Edge and Rey Mysterio in the first round of the tag-team tournament. It, it's it's very weird to see how people fluctuate up and down this card, but I think they got the most out of their roster. And Chavo Guerrero has a solitary one as well, again, teaming with Los Guerreros. And then the other two are the odd ones out of Paul Heyman and the fabulous Moolah. Yeah, I love it. Moolah being on this journey is such a fun footnote. So superstar win rates, so it was like the little percentages side of things. Um, there is one wrestler on the male side of things that got a 100% winning record. And that is Rhino. Okay, yeah, that's because he 
had the two matches. Yep, two wins out of two. Uh, in a similar vein, there are several wrestlers, actually, that have a 0% winning uh, rate on the male side of things, uh, which is Brian Kendrick, uh, Christian, ah. AEW's recent signing, obviously, uh, Johnny the Ball Stamboli, Randy, or- Randy Orton, that's shocking. And a test. Um, I think those are very strange, um, random statistics. But yep. I like the idea that poor Brian Kendrick comes in. He had that great five-minute match with Kurt Angle. And yeah, he came up short, but he had one of the last sleeper matches on the journey. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there was obviously a few mixed bags ones. So Chris Benoit, out of his um, 32 matches, he had 15 wins, 16 losses, and one draw. Or no contest. I can't remember which way it was around, but essentially one match and didn't have a decisive finish. Kurt Do you Angle. what match that was? No, I can't. I think it was something that was involving Kurt Angle or something. I, I can't imagine it had to involve Kurt Angle because most of his matches did involve Kurt Angle. Uh, funny enough, Kurt Angle himself, only a 35% winning rate. Hmm. Uh, 31 matches, 11 wins, 18 losses, two, two, even not no contest or something of that effect. Did he not? Kurt Angle didn't have the draw in his record. Uh, he did have that one. Yeah, but he had two. He had another one as well, which I don't know where it came from. The only people that I see have like either an other. I think it was the Undertaker match. Yeah, that that could have been. Yeah, it was a draw. Yeah, so I assume that one counted as well. Yeah, Undertaker has one here as well, so yeah, I assume it was that one. I don't know. I assume his other one involved Chris Benoit, but I can't say what that match was. It must have, it's because they were so linked together. You have like, a few other bits and pieces. You have The Rock had 80%. Bill DeMott had an 89% winning rate. Uh, Brock Lesnar had 90%. Uh, oh. eight, 18 wins out of his 20. One loss. Actually, well, it's, it's higher than that because it's at the extra one. I still have to remember at the extra one. So 21 matches, 19 wins, one loss, and one uh, either draw, no contest, something of that effect. But I can't remember what his loss was, actually. I assume it was a DQ or something. Huh. Because I don't recall him ever getting... He definitely wasn't pinned on SmackDown or made to submit, so it must have just been some random DQ. I know the match was no contest. It was the one with Rey Mysterio in Halloween, which got uh, called out by the big show. That actually might be the one he lost because Big Show attacks Rey Mysterio first. Um, I can't recall, but it, I would think it had to be. On the women's side of things, Tori Wilson obviously had the most matches, but she also had a losing record. Five wins, six losses. Not uh, bad. Pretty Stace, down the middle. Yeah. Stacey Keebler and Molly Holly had a 100% win rate. Obviously, Molly Holly defended the women's titles successfully twice. Stacey Keebler won the Brian Panties matches that she had with Tori Wilson. Uh, Nidia, 33%. Dormory, 50%. Fabulous Moolah, 0%. Oh, poor Moolah. Did Moolah really count, though? I mean, it was a, it was a, a no-contest match with the Big Show. Yeah. So uh, she didn't lose. She doesn't lose. She has a 0% losing reference rate as well, so... Didn't win, didn't lose. Hmm. And that's kind of it from the stats side of things. Obviously, there's a lot of things that we cover in terms of, like... There were plenty of, obviously, SmackDown... Uh, matches that took place at the different pay-per-views events, but 
and we've covered the rating side of things. SmackDown's highest rating during this entire journey, I believe, was a a 4.25 that they scored for the 24th of October. So I can't remember. I'm just trying to see what the main event of that show was, actually, which was Chris Benoit versus Kurt Angle, funnily enough. Of course it was. Ah, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So... Yeah, that was the highest one across the entire journey for them. And yeah, that's, I think we can move on past the like the little statistical part. I think I know that people here, Tony definitely likes statistics. I know a few people that listen to our content like statistics as well. So I thought I'd bring up a few of those before we dive into a few of our just personal memories and favorite parts. So let's talk, let's talk favorite matches. It's always a good topic. So I think based on what I know about you and what we've discussed in this journey, there are two matches that were going to stand out right at the top for you, which is... You probably named them both right off the bat. So one of them is Edge versus Eddie Guerrero in the street fight. Obviously. Which was an absolutely insane match. It's the greatest television match I've ever seen. Uh, It's going a long way. Yeah, like, look, there's great matches now. But you have to say again, you did not see matches like that. No, it was incredibly violent, well put together. It was chaotic in certain parts, but to be fair, a lot of Eddie Guerrero's matches across this journey were. So I can't really blame them too much for that side of things. Uh, the other match, obviously, is the two out of three falls tag team match, Angle and Chris Benoit versus Edge and Rey Mysterio. And that match is, again, really, really good. They had two of the best tag team matches that I've ever seen. In those two matches, that that match and the match at um, uh, No Mercy, they're just they're just awesome tag team matches. They were two awesome thrown together tag teams that do awesome tag team stuff. I would say that the SmackDown match is easily the second best match I've ever seen on television. This these matches were so good. They were so good. They were so much fun. You can feel like the desire to improve and get better. I, so good. Yeah, you essentially hear those names a lot, really, because other ones I've gotten listed down here is just like talking points. We have Kurt Angle versus Chris Benoit versus Edge versus Eddie Guerrero. <laughs> that would be the third match. That again, this journey shaped who I am as a wrestling fan. Really, like wow, this. Fatal four-way elimination match. It's so good. Obviously, have basically any iteration of Kangle versus Chris Benoit, but I, the one that stood out to me most was the one uh, post Royal Rumble 2003. Yeah, which we would later realize is their last match. Yeah, and that match was really, really good as well. So that was that was the one that stood out most to me. We have Angle versus Rey Mysterio fought twice on SmackDown. Both, obviously, their match at SummerSlam is highly revered as one of the greatest opening matches to a pay-per-view in WWE history. But I think their two matches that they had on SmackDown alongside that are almost at least comparable to that one. I would agree. You have people like Edge and Mysterio against Los Guerreros and Kurt Angle versus and Chris Benoit versus Los Guerreros. Los Guerreros were a great tactic, tag team. I don't think anyone really needs to iterate that, reiterate that point, but they were just, they were great. A lot of fun. Especially I, in the heel side of things. I would also want to point out uh, on the, obviously, like, mostly covering SmackDown, but on the pay-per-view side of things, I really enjoyed the triple threat at Vengeance. Oh, absolutely. 
I the Chris Benoit brought Van Dam at SummerSlam. Uh, the whole of SummerSlam, really. <laughs> like Kurt Angle or Mysterio. Um, yeah, I also had the like the triple threat tag at Survivor Series, which was great. To be fair, Brock Lesnar versus Big Show was a really fun short sprint at Survivor Series. Absolutely. Um, Billy Kidman, Jamie Noble. That was a great match at Survivor Series. Great match at Survivor Series. Chris Benoit versus Eddie Guerrero at Armageddon. uh, Billy Kidman and Ray against the Un-Americans on uh, Global Warning. Yeah, that was was fun fun. Uh, Hurricane Helms versus Jamie Noble at Global Warning. Well, Global Warning, we saw saw Rock versus Brock Lesnar versus Triple H. Which is, for the sheer anomaly of it, is amazing. Yeah. Other stuff that I had noted down here that maybe ones that are a little bit out of the memory a bit. Edge versus Chris Jericho in a steel cage match. Yeah, great. And which obviously included the big Rey Mysterio dive off the steel cage towards the end of it, which they used in basically every SmackDown video package for the next 10 years. And every Rey video package going mm-hmm. forward. Um, a few ones that sleep under the radar. I think the Team Angle versus Chris Benoit and Rhino match towards the end of the journey was absolutely brilliant. I think it was like the last the last match we talked about before the um the Paul Heyman Brock Lesnar steel cage. Well, that was full. That was a lot of fun. I would say, I I enjoyed the handicap match on No Way Out. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was, I, I think that was one of the best matches on the No Way Out card. So I wouldn't. I definitely wouldn't be a a, a, a big grudge putting that one in there. I'd say Rey Mysterio's second match on his entire journey against Dejiri was a lot of fun. Anytime Tajiri got in the ring was a blast. Oh, Tajiri was one of the, the just he's a just an absolute bundle of joy to watch in this match, and one which I did not expect, but I absolutely adored. And I don't know if you felt similar. Like, Rico versus Rey Mysterio. Yeah, that match was yeah. fucking awesome. I think it stands out because it's Rico. Yeah, I don't and... think that. Like, literally, I could go through his entire. Journey. I don't think I'd find a better Rico match in WWE than that one with Rey Mysterio. And it was a lot of fun. I think it speaks to the fact that Rico was a standout in OVW and got shafted because he wasn't in the the, the OVW four, so to speak. But and I, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I understand that side of it. Uh, he was obviously a lot older as well, which nowadays would be a, an absolute blessing for him. But uh, yeah, he'd <laughs> be point. killing her in AEW if he was that age. But and and I guess it wouldn't be we would be. Uh, fair to um, leave out the fact of the some matches which weren't really like technically great but had great moments so Brock Lesnar versus Hulk Hogan I love that I think it's a great story and then basically everything involving The Rock in his time on Smackdown yeah Uh, Rock I I have to talk about because Rock was a workhorse towards the end of his journey in WWE and I really respect that I think one of the things that shines through with The Rock is his love of the game and that that's something we didn't you wouldn't expect from a star of his magnitude but the love of the game he has is incredible so on the flip side of this uh, equation to be fair there weren't many matches that i quote unquote hate there were a lot of like nothing okay this match happened kind of things but there weren't many that really got my blood boiling or made me just like feel this was a waste of time or anything like that. But there are a few. 
one of which is obviously pretty obvious in terms of the the very last episode of our journey, Undertaker versus A Train. Oh yeah, that it just wasn't good. I, I will add, it's not a SmackDown match, but it was a lot worse than I could have ever recalled, and that was Triple H versus Kane at No um, Mercy. Yeah, and obviously if we're adding those sort of things as well, both Triple H versus Scott Steiner matches from Royal Rumble and No Way Out 2003. Yeah. And I think it was you who really pointed out how Triple H and Shawn Michaels at Armageddon does not hold. No. Like... It is, it is unfortunate. I mean, when you're watching it in the moment, especially at the ages that we would have been watching it, it's a lot of fun and there's a lot of violence and stuff like that. As an actual, just going back and watching it as a match, it's just a, a match where a load of shit happens and there's no story. But uh, It's just weird because of his... Like, when you look at those two guys... You wouldn't think that they would have that kind of a match. And looking back on it, they really had like a kind of an indie level match. Mm. Uh, other stuff that kind of caught my eye. We had John Cena versus Test early on in the thing. And we we kind of commented it quite a few times that John Cena was pretty ropey in his first few months in WWE. He obviously had the great match. It was a great match, but the fun exhibition earlier thing with Kurt Angle. But after that, it kind of went a bit downhill for him. Right. He just wasn't ready. Not from an in-ring standpoint. I guess he was ready in the sense that he was charismatic enough or he had that presence enough about him that he'd be able to carry himself, but he just wasn't polished. And I think when you're coming up to the main roster, so much changes that how can you possibly, you know, be ready for it. And then we had the never-ending feud between Bill DeMott and Rikishi. Uh, And I think... As much as, like, look, we love women's wrestling. You have to talk about Tori Wilson and Don Marie were not Charlotte Flair and Becky Lynch. No, Tori you didn't know? have, but that's us this way. Tori didn't have a great match Ever. across the entire journey. Like, I'd, I'd say, like, obviously Tori Stacy, Tori Dawn, pretty much a lot of the ones involving Tori and Nidia, but I will give one match credit, which is Molly Holly versus Nidia. Yeah. I think for the time... That was a good match. Nowadays, obviously, it still wouldn't hold up. But for the time, it was a good match. And I would also say that they had the fun story of people wanting Nidia to win just because she said she'd take her clothes off. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, that was so uh, WWE's, WWE's go-to at this point in time. It's like, hey, women are going to take their clothes off. Just kidding. So let's talk about some favorite moments or promos, segments, anything along those lines. So... What, what 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 really stands out in your mind in terms of those ones at the moment? In terms of promos? Or just, just well, any moments or segments outside of in-ring action? So first of all, Funaki's I Love Smackdown hmm. is always going to be a highlight for me. Just because he, he did really well in the number one announcer role. I In general, I think everything... Involving Matt Hardy and Shannon Moore was a blast. And the whole Matt Hardy in North Carolina, like, I'm going back out there and I'm getting another pop. And put me on your shoulders, guys. I'm awesome. Like, I thought it was funny. I wanted to mention that as well, because obviously we need to... Matt Hardy was a, a beacon of light in this journey. As we, we reference all the time, the V1 gimmick is just... It's so perfect for this time. Like He's so forward-thinking with it. But I wanted to reference that brawl that he had with The Undertaker. Because I remember going out of that brawl and thinking, 
I want to see Undertaker versus Matt Hardy in a pay-per-view. I wanted to see that match inside Hell in a Cell more than I wanted to see Undertaker versus Brock Lesnar inside Hell in a Cell. Uh, yeah, because the Unforgiven match was not good. Thankfully, the Taker and Lesnar turned the ship around. But Hardy was great, and he really maximized maximized his minutes. So other stuff, obviously the Angle Cena stuff that we discussed earlier, that is, it's a legendary moment. That's the reason why we started the journey when we started it, is because that Cena's coming out party. Yeah, and it's everything with Undertaker shaking his hand. It just felt like a major moment. We obviously mentioned Rey Mysterio diving off the cage. I think a lot of good promo segments involve Kurt Angle belittling Rey Mysterio. Yeah, because Kurt Angle's great. Kurt Angle not being so tone deaf to himself is just one of the better things on this journey. Because he does play a dork very well. Oh yeah, he does definitely. I, like I love the few of the promo segments that he would do where he would um be saying something at the end of the promo which sounded very suggestive or something like that and he would have to like like he it's going to ride that small kid or something on those lines and like, he says that yes. no, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, very good. Other stuff the um a lot of stuff that was involving oh actually we'll talk about that in a little bit when we talk about rivalries and stuff like that that uh, as they mentioned, Brock decimating Hulk Hogan and smearing the blood across his chest. That's an iconic shot. One of my favorites. Uh, one that's a little bit recency biased, but Brian Kendrick streaking. Oh my god. And yes. the match with Kurt Angle as well. That's a great Brian, match. Brian Kendrick was a lot of fun on this journey. Yeah, it's a shame that we don't get to see it going forward, but to be fair, it doesn't really get much better when he's when he's spanky and actually signs to the, signs to the roster. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, John Cena's promos when he actually got beaten up by Brock Lesnar and then after that point. I mean, to be fair, he was doing well prior to that with whether it was with B-Squared or Red Dog, just cutting promos to the ring. But when he got more intense after being taken out by Brock Lesnar, that's when you really started to see this guy as a potential main event caliber star in the future. I think John Cena is a tremendous example of you don't write people off right away. And I think as a general thing, apart from one thing that we'll talk about on the flip side of this, the SmackDown Halloween party. Yeah, uh, that's going to be one of my, okay, one of the best in terms of just fun, one of the worst in terms of how that ends. No, well, well that's what we we're going to reference side of thing, because in the least favorite side of things, uh, the Stephanie McMahon, Eric Bischoff making out session. Yeah. It's just... And that more so, that being the end mm. of their rivalry then just doesn't go anywhere it's not so much just the moment happens i mean the moment that happening is just weird just overall but it's just specifically the because bishop is dressed as vince yeah obviously but it's just a case that it just doesn't go anywhere beyond that point um the um stephanie a lot of these ones are going to mention stephanie in some form or fashion but there are reasons for it the uh, stephanie McMahon production room segments yeah, are the you mean the ones with the camera cuts? Yeah, and stuff like that, where the, where like the camera cuts and she repeats the same thing multiple times because of that as well. It's just it was just weird. I appreciate yeah, them trying something weird. new, but it just came across really odd. It really wasn't great. Um, two weddings on this journey: the Billy and Chuck uh, commitment ceremony and the Al Wilson and Dawn Marie wedding. All right, look, Billy and Chuck, say what you will. Yes, I didn't like the fact that. It was like, oh, we're not gay, big pop. But 
outside of that, the Lillian Chuck commitment ceremony is tremendous. And the fact that they cut off the people singing It's Raining Men off the network is a shame. What about the uh, Marie Wilson one? Obviously, we'll that talk was, a little bit more about that. A dumpster fire. Dumps, uh, awful. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little while afterwards. But um, uh, Scott Steiner attempts to sexually assault Stephanie McMahon. Less than that, I, I'm going to be honest. Worse than that is Stephanie McMahon saying, I, if you sign, you can fuck me. <laughs> and then <laughs> be like, nope, I actually didn't sign because we didn't. And it, all of it was bad. I think we have to reference this just because of the, the years that, that have gone by, but quite a few Chris Benoit promo segments in 2021. Yeah, there's a reason they were cut off. Yeah. <laughs> but there's still some that survived that still don't sound very good. Oh, like where what was it? He said he wanted to make the rock fucking squeal and scream. It's like, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, there's certain ones that just don't live on very well. To be fair, there was a good segment in terms of the um the little um Eddie Guerrero, Chavo, Kangle, Crispin Wall beating each other up backstage and things like that. Those those were fun. But then there's one other person who again I'll bring up time and again in this side of things, and it's it's a very specific specific gimmick that we don't appreciate, and that's the Undertaker at this point in time. Oh, so, he was awful. Undertaker as undisputed champion was not fun. At all, I think cut too many boring promos. And although would... I'll I'll take the month of him as champion over him not being champion and waiting around in the parking lot for people. <laughs> you know, yeah. like yes, yeah, so Undertaker waiting in the parking lot. We had the Undertaker getting boxes from the Big Show for a few weeks. So that was the way to prolong it because the Big Show couldn't appear because of his back injury. But then I think it's topped overall by Undertaker and Tracy. Oh, that would... Uh, it's a miracle that they were able to um, just kind of gloss past that in terms of his overall career. It's a miracle, because that, like, kills The Undertaker. Yeah, it was a really bad overall idea and... Like, you're already going to be putting Undertaker and Brock Lesnar inside Hell in a Cell. Why do you need to involve just some random woman that apparently slept with the Undertaker at some point? And that's where I was getting at in the beginning with, listen, Paul Heyman left to his own devices for too long. Sucks. He can can get in that sort of direction. I think it's just, again, it, it boils down to the idea of making Undertaker human. Yeah. It just doesn't work. He's better as a mythical, destructive device. It's not. And I think, ironically, I think in recent months people have found that maybe they don't want to see Undertaker be superhuman. No. You know, or like, like they they like the mythical character. They don't necessarily want to know about Mark Kelly the man. Let's talk about like favorite rivalries or storylines. Uh, start off with the SmackDown Six. It's always always a good place to start. Uh, the best thing about this journey, and I think inspired this generation of wrestlers. Yeah, it's definitely one of the pivotal points in that. That's Kurt Angle, Chris Benoit, Edge, Rey Mysterio, Eddie and Chavo Guerrero. They are just, they were putting on banger matches against each other in one iteration or another for a solid three to four months of this journey. 
And obviously the main rivalry that was embedded within all of that is Kurt Angle versus Chris Benoit. You know, I think all of that was good. I do wish that this version of Edge got a little bit more play because obviously he gets injured and doesn't do anything. By the time he comes back, it's really like a year-long wait for him to turn. It is, it is and, one of those big ifs in wrestling is that what would happen to Edge if he had never gone injured at that point? I think his entire career would have been different. Oh, yeah, absolutely, I think as well. I think he would have... It, it's weird to say because he, I don't know whether he'd ever end up in that situation with Lita if he didn't. I, I don't think he would have. No, because Lita was out of commission. They were both out of commission at the same time. That's how they kind of got together in that regards. And Edge would have still been on the road constantly. So he wouldn't have had the need to turn heel because people wouldn't have turned as badly against him. And... You know, and I, it's it's odd. I think while that is his best run. I ultimately think it's something that like probably wouldn't happen today, right? Like where you highlight these very human flaws mm. and make a storyline out of it. Oh yeah, and... it certainly wouldn't happen to, at right. this point today. But it's just a case of I think, and again, it certainly isn't something that I would recommend by any stretch of the imagination. But I think this is an instance where that injury benefited his career long term. Because I think if he'd stayed, obviously if he'd stayed healthy, he would have had a longer career. But I think if he'd been able to continue wrestling and didn't pick up that injury, he would have just ended up as like, okay, we're going to give him the title at one point. He just could, he, he would have had one title reign akin to the likes of a Booker T or um, Rob Van Dam, I think. Maybe, like, maybe if he was lucky, a title reign akin to Eddie Guerrero or Chris Benoit, but I think that would have been it for Edge. I I can agree with that because he it, he doesn't become main event until he's the rated R superstar. I think that he what he had in him was always there. Oh, I don't I don't doubt that. It's just he needed that character to push it to the edge to the, I, to pun the pun or anything like that. But to really get to that next level, he needs that character. I would even argue, and you see it today when you try to do Edge babyface. It doesn't work out as well, you know? Yeah. No, no, I completely agree. Um, other storylines outside of it or rivalries, Rock versus Brock. This One is a- the archetype for how you should be booking Sasha Banks versus Bianca Belair. You took, I think you took the words right out of my mouth because you know I'm going there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, you, you go off on it. Okay. No, like, this is how you book a proper wrestling match. Like, this is... Sports-centric presentation to a T. It's just these two dudes training. Like, the the images of uh, Rock running up the stairs and Lesnar in the ice bath are just, like, it burned into my brain because it was such an impactful debut. Well, not debut, but, like, a vignette. Like, that's how you market these people. Yes, that is the archetype that you should be doing with... Uh, Banks and Bel Air, and I hope they get there. They're running out of time, but you can still get there. So this is the... For me, it stands out because this is the... I think it's the last time WWE ever just decided we're just strapping the rocket to this guy. And there's a reason for that. Yeah, exactly. And we discussed that as well, but it, I think um, I've heard uh, like Sean is in other places talk about this, like Sean Ross Sapp talk about it, the fact that Brock Lesnar was shot to the moon and then he left. 
and Vince was so traumatized by that whole experience that he couldn't trust putting another superstar in that position again. Say what you want about Vince McMahon, but Vince McMahon is a sensitive man and his heart was broken. Yeah. Yeah. Brock Lesnar could have easily started a whole new era of WWE. Yeah. Brock Lesnar, like when you think about that, Brock Lesnar, had he stayed, could have started this whole era of like really athletic sports and presentation. Yeah. Like he could have been that guy. What the UFC ends up becoming. WWE might have been able to get some of that ground had Brock Lesnar stuck around. But no, Brock Lesnar leaves and it's it changes the whole business. Yeah, absolutely. And like that again has shaped a lot of things in the future because just the case of Vince being super hesitant, it's it's kind of really the start of like the the brand is the draw. It's not the people that are the draw within the brand, it's the brand itself. Which is such a damn shame. Which has proven over the last 15 years that it doesn't fucking work. And they proved it with John Cena. Like, when they had a legitimate draw, you can say whatever you want about the John Cena era. But John Cena carried that company because, ultimately, the cream rose to the top, and he was bigger than, you know, WWE. So, also within that feud was just the fact that they were just working with other people in between it, and it didn't feel unnatural. Brock worked with Hulk Hogan. He had a short feud with Hulk Hogan during that period of time, which was a lot of fun. He he actually had teased the rivalry that we're getting towards now with Kurt Angle during that period. Brock was having matches with Chris Moore and Eddie Guerrero during this time. Yeah, because they did the number one contendership perfectly coming out of the Royal Rumble, where it's like... uh, you know, coming out of, not the Royal Rumble, sorry, coming out of the King of the Ring where it's like, you know, he's going to face the champion, whether that's uh, Undertaker, Kurt Angle, The Rock, doesn't matter. Like, he's going to face the world champion. And then Hogan got right in there and said, maybe I want to fight The Rock, you know? And it all worked. It didn't feel disjointed in any way. So other stuff, uh, Brock Lesnar versus Team Angle in general, and Brock Lesnar versus The Big Show, you can kind of incorporate all of those together, really. Brock Lesnar had rivalries with pretty much everybody, on like every big star. So there was, it went from The Rock to The Undertaker, which was a bit of a, a hodgepodge of a feud. I don't think it was one of the worst, but it definitely wasn't one of the best either. Then Big Show, which was fun, and then it transitions immediately onto Team Angle. But really the overarching one is Brock Lesnar versus Paul Heyman. Yeah, and I've said that like this was good, but I I think like we've all learned uh Paul and Brock are better as a unit. Yeah, they 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 broke them up too soon. It should have been realistically Brock Lesnar should have ended WrestleMania nineteen as the champion. He shouldn't have like be going in as the the baby face into that match. I think in another world, you do Brock Lesnar Stone Cold at WrestleMania, and it works out better that way. Oh, yeah, you could definitely definitely could have gone with that approach as well. Um, I think Undertaker versus Matt Hardy and just the overall storyline of Mattitude is... One of the best. Oh, yeah, one of the favorite ones of this entire journey as well. Any other ones yeah. that stand out in your mind? In um... a positive light, at the very least? In terms of like uh, 
from just a character perspective, I would say Jamie Noble mm-hmm. and Nydia were highlights that should not have been as big of a highlight as they were, but it really just works. And yeah, I, I didn't reference this before, but I love that segment of them getting the double wide trailer. The running it's a, water. <laughs> it's, just the, it's just the idea of like that, that thing that just, it, it blew my mind in such a positive way. Just like, these are people that have won a title belt and it's changed their lives for the better. But like, that's what it's supposed to do. <laughs> because again, I think we're too far embraced in the era of, oh, well, you know, the belt is a prop and it's cool because it's a company putting it on your back. But it's also cool because, hey, you make more money now. Like, it's awesome. Let's talk about some p- things on the lower end of this scale as well. I think, obviously, the magnum opus of shitty storytelling and shitty um, just overall storylines for this entire period of time, Tori Wilson, Dawn Marie, and Al Wilson. Okay, on the one hand, you got to be objective here, right? These are people that have to feed their families, and they have to eat. And, like, it's also, like, you're employed, so you should use them. But you couldn't find anything else to do. Let's let's put this objective as well. This did draw ratings. We can't deny that side of things. This did yeah. work. It's just looking back on it. It's just it's like it's incredibly seedy and it's incredibly not funny. And the whole punchline of the entire storyline is that a guy died. <laughs> See when you, woman. <laughs> when, when you when you put it that black and white, it is funny because it's like holy shit, they put well, yeah, this well, on TV. Well, the, this is this is a three month storyline that ended with a guy dying, and then they laughed about it in commentary afterwards. And Vincent Man brought it up in a promo that Al Wilson is dead, and the guy wasn't dead. He was. Yeah. He would live for another eighteen years, pretty much. Just like, just how weird all that stuff is. The tall, the Dormery, like there were so many issues just from a basic storyline perspective. Like Dormery wasn't a heel in this storyline. She she showed no signs of that she was bullying or victimizing or taking advantage of Al Wilson during this. Yeah, very not until strange. like maybe a little bit towards the end, but not significantly. Tori was very petulant and angry, but we we're supposed to think that she was in the right, being a babyface about this. Uh, yeah, it, just yeah, just the, just the, the whole the whole pseudo. I, again, I don't want to use the the four letter R word, but just like the whole whole creepiness of Dormery soliciting sex out of Tory. It's just just it's just such gross. And thing. then it becomes like, oh my god, they're talking rumors. It, it was just it was it's a very weird thing. Yeah, it's incredibly seedy, all based on the Sorry. idea of like, again, this whole this quote oh, unquote Wilson HLA saying, era, this quote unquote I'll, HLA era of WWE. Oh, Wilson saying I'll kill myself if you don't marry me, and and the is basically like, yeah, like what is this? You'd imagine like in the if that if that had happened in like twenty like fourteen or whatever, the giant yes chant would start going across the audience. Yeah, which is <laughs> really strange and disturbing. Let's talk Stephanie McMahon versus Eric Bischoff. Yes, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the weird sexualization of a woman in power. 
I mean, it's beyond that side of things as well. It's just this overarching narrative that took place in the first few months of this journey of Raw versus SmackDown, two general managers. And I understand to a degree you need to have that rivalry. I just think that they overdid, they overplayed their hand with it. Yeah, I'll grant you, but it's it's the the end of it is is creepy as all fuck, and we've already mentioned that side of things. So I don't think we need to delve into it too much more deeply. But overall, I, I don't. Just think but I don't t- mind the brand versus brand thing. I mind that it was like, oh, the the, the verbiage was constantly like, ah, look at that. Yeah, she's a uptight woman. She just needs, you know, like it. They kept going back there. And, like, I don't get why. I get why, but I don't get, like, how you couldn't do anything else. And then to to build it around a lackluster tag team match at Unforgiven and a shitty, weird makeout session. Like, that's the best you could do? I guess so, at that point in time. I guess, I guess so, indeed. We've already mentioned uh, Rikishi versus Bill DeMott. It was just there. It wasn't, like egregiously offensive but to be fair this journey on the whole was so good that one stood out um i would say bill demont as a whole was a miss not as much of a miss as mark lloyd okay <laughs> mark lloyd was bad but bill demont was just never destined for wrestling stardom i think we also need to reference that the point in time where things kind of changed and you could start to see i don't want to say vince's influence because obviously i don't know i wasn't there backstage but you kind of feel at that point in time when they start pushing the A train as like this new big person coming in and doing that stuff, Bill DeMott fits into that category. You have to say going forward, Nathan Jones is about to fit in that category as well. Just we need bigger people essentially is the is the message going forward. You mean to tell me that they weren't satisfied with Guerrero and Mysterio? That's the thing. Is everybody loves Guerrero and Benoit, well, not loves Benoit, but you know what I mean, in the ring. At that point in time, yes. And it's like, everybody loves that, but they spent forever trying to get away from that. They just did. They spent forever trying to get away from, well, Rey is too small and is really the best we can do. You know, that it's almost laughable when they try to put him over. It's like, oh, he's so great. Answer me this, honestly. If Eddie Guerrero doesn't die, does Rey Mysterio become world champion? No. Then there you go. It's, it's no, no, I, I that. can't say it's that. He, he, def- he definitely doesn't become. Maybe they give him like the like they gave him the WWE title in that like kind of ceremonial way. Maybe they do that, but I don't think he he becomes a legitimate quote unquote world champion. I don't think he becomes nearly as big of a deal. I mean. It's obvious he doesn't become world champion in that regard because they gave him the world title and then he lost every single week pretty much until he dropped the title. He lost to it's, fucking Finley as world champion. That's how... That's how. Uh... It's a shame, though, because they try to say that he is this great guy. And he, he is. He is a legend, but it's just not... It's not what it could be, and I think it's because they try to get away from a lot of this stuff. I mean, even if you look at now with Daniel Bryan, Daniel Bryan has said the whole yes-no thing was literally WWE trying to get fans to stop saying yes because they were pissed off mm. that Daniel Bryan got over. It's like, 
if you don't get over the way they want you to get over, it's not going to happen. And I think this journey is indicative of that in some ways. Because even like Heyman, look, if you're not going to play in our house, we're just going to throw you out. Absolutely, yeah. I think uh, one other storyline that I wanted to bring up on a negative side of things, a blast from the past, uh, Batista and Reverend Devon. Awful. The whole Reverend Devon thing is just such a miss in WWE's history. Who decided to put a, a, a box around Dave Batista's neck? Which, by the way, is massive. And go, okay, that's, that's what we're doing. Like, that could have been so much worse if they didn't, thankfully at this time, still give people chances. Yeah, there was that on-running thing for a little while. It was Batista and Devon against Randy Orton and whoever he could find as his tag team partner. Like, again, thank God they give people second chances back then because that could have ended horribly. So, breezing past that point, let's talk a bit about overachievers and underachievers. Like, people that stood out to us in a positive way, in a negative way. Or underachievers, yeah, in a negative way. In terms of what we would anticipate from them in terms of the journey. So I think we're talking overachievers. I think the standout name is Matt Hardy. Yeah, he absolutely took the ball and ran with it. But I'm going to go a step further. I think Jimmy Noble is an overachiever. Oh, yeah. I I think, quite frankly, Ray is an overachiever. I think, quite frankly, even though he was given all the tools, Brock Lesnar... We've seen people been given that push before, and it don't work. Brock Lesnar exceeded expectations. Yeah, he was excellent in the roles. He felt like, okay, this is the biggest star that we're going to have for a a long time coming. So he definitely took that role. I'd say Tajiri exceeded expectations in terms of just being... I mean, we knew how good he was in the ring, but it's just when you watch his match, I can't look away from watching his matches. Right. It's just, he's just that, it, you don't, I don't think I appreciated at the time, and that's probably part of this overachieving, I don't think I appreciated at the time how good Tajiri was. I would also say, in terms of overachieving, you gotta give it to the Guerreros. Guerreros I think Chavo's work in this period is highly undervalued. I think Chavo was great during this run. I don't think he actually, in, in terms of Guerreros overall brilliant, it's just that Eddie, I spotted things being like a bit erratic almost in some, some of his matches where Chavo is just solid throughout. I would I'd agree with that. And sometimes I'm a little harder on Chavo myself. I'm trying to think of like any other ones that kind of like stood out in a positive light. I mean, for the most part, people did a lot of good things, but obviously you, can't, you expect Kurt Angle to be great. You expect Chris Benoit to do great things. And Edge at this point in time, you'd expect him to do really well. I think I guess you could argue that based in the context of the time, the Big Show was an overachiever. Yeah, because they, they managed they were, to rescue the Big Show. Uh, they very much played into the fact that he was falling apart on the Raw brand. So yeah, to the underachievers, let's start with the Undertaker. Yes, he's one of the again we've mentioned it multiple times. He's one of the biggest legends in WWE's history, maybe the biggest legend in WWE history in terms of just longevity and everything like that. But his run as 
dead man ink biker take or whatever you want to call it is just so underwhelming and it's it's just disappointing overall like he doesn't feel like a highlight of these shows he's very much a low point uh billy and chuck uh, i don't know if that i don't know whether they fit in this category or not i just was i think it's open for discussion at least i think billy chuck and rico are open in discussion for this one i think the gimmick is fun uh, you know, like, it was a lot of fun for the time. Yeah, I think where they drop off is when suddenly they just say they're not gay. And mm. then they're just like, and we're going to host a bikini contest to show you how not gay we are. It's like, uh, okay. You know, like. Mm. Um, I would say something then maybe for, at least on the Chuck side of things, the full-blooded Italians. Oh, for absolutely. They came in and did nothing. Yeah, and it <laughs> sort kind of mirrors um Nunzio's debut, pretty much, because his first match on SmackDown, he lost to Bill DeMott and Crash Holly. It was yeah. like they just didn't know what to do with these guys when they came straight in. Uh, I would say A Train fits in this category because they gave him a big push out of the gate and then he just became one of the guys again. Uh, yeah, what a surprise. Bill DeMott, obviously. Bill DeMott, yeah, fits that way. Devon and Batista. I'd say obviously less Batista, more D- Reverend Devon. Uh, Ron Simmons was weird. In this role as well. It was weird. He was weird. Like, is he Farouk? Is he Ron Simmons? Yeah. It's, I, it's... Also, underachiever to me, at, at least, I expected a little more from, like, well, it's hard because I, I was going to say Kidman was an underachiever, but he also shined well. So I. It's hard. I think he's open to discussion. He was great in Ring Guy. He was very, very weak as a character. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'd also maybe even put Mark Henry in this category as well. It's it's hard because it's weird that Mark Henry didn't get good. I'd say good, obviously. It's, it's again that's that's a harsh phrase, but he didn't get to that level until 2011. It's just like at this point in time, he looks like like. Where are you going? Like, what is your what is your place here? You're like you're like the world's strongest man, but you lose most of your matches. You just don't know what they were doing with him. Well, that's what they do with strong men. Like, we see we saw it with Big Show, and we saw it with we're seeing it now with Braun. When they have nothing to do with with the big guy, they just go with, "Oh, I'm big and imposing, so you should fear me," but not really. And, you know, I'm going to lose a bunch of matches. I think we also have to mention Bling Bling Bull Buchanan. I mean, did he underwhelm? Because really, you expecting him to do any good, but it's like, right even guy, in his small role. Right guy, wrong time. Mm. Like, because he's good. He's got a lot of great moves, but wrong time. Oh, I also want to mention this on the overachiever side of things, because we did mention Matt Hardy. Shannon Moore. Oh, yeah, he's he's very good. Yeah, he's excellent in the role, I just think. And I'd add, obviously, in the same uh, bit with uh, Jamie Noble, Nidia overachieved. I would argue that uh, Crash Holly underachieved. Yeah, he he came over and then he just was immediately just pushed down the card. Didn't really do much of any real note. Overachievers for again the context of the time, Charlie Haas and Shelton Benjamin. Absolutely, they came in and immediately were. This is back when people legitimately still got the rub. 
like because they were paired with Angle, and it was just like, oh, I guess they're a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. It's just you tie them up with Team Angle. You, they come in with the matching gear immediately and stuff like that. They look like an absolute A-star unit. And they're given the tag team titles within a, like within a month of debuting. Obviously, they're, they're still lose matches because they're not ultimately super protected, especially against Lesnar and stuff like that. But they came in. They had good matches. They didn't look out of place whatsoever. They were hanging with like the top guys. They were having uh, repeat matches with Benoit and Edge and Lesnar and everyone else. They weren't they weren't just given those like given a, a good opening start and then just put into the lower card to have feuds with I don't know like Billy Kidman and uh, trying to think of another bait like Tajiri's like a tag team or something like that. They were they were putting okay we're signing you up with Team Angle, signing you with Kurt Angle. And then you're basically just thrusting the main event from the outset, and they still thrived. I would, um, I would say that's part of the art that's lost now. First of all, as much as we love NXT, I think it's becoming a detriment that nobody can show up on TV anymore without some sort of knowledge of who they are. Like, do you remember when? For example, like Carlito got vignettes and Carlito would just show up and oh shit, he beat John Cena. Okay, he's a player now. Same thing with Team Angle. You know, back when you used to just have like these random debuts and they could become their own stars, now you know everybody. So, like, who can come out of the blue and shock you? Yeah, absolutely. Just. It, it, you know, say it just doesn't have that same feeling nowadays that somebody could just come in and just be posi- launched into that position super quickly. And there should be something like that. But again, that's down to it's part of the Brock Lesnar dynamic and stuff like that as well. Even even though you knew that Charlie Hoss and Charlie Midgham, at least out of the gate, they weren't going to be world champion straight away or anything like that. But you felt they were a big deal coming in. I mean, even Lesnar, we didn't cover this part of 2002, but Brock Lesnar in April shows up. Mm. And, oh, my God, he's a monster. Who is this guy? He's Brock Lesnar. We've got to get to know him. So I'm going to give you a bit of time to do this while I cover a, a couple of little plugs towards the end of this. But I want you to think of your, <laughs> take Booker teaser phrase here, your fave five and your least fave five from Smackdown, the Smackdown journey. We'll just try and I've got some of mine listed here. They don't have to be in any particular order or anything like that. Just but... just like superstars or people? Uh, it can be people. It could be anybody that you want to put into it. Any character, any um, any character, yeah. any person, one side or the other that appeared throughout this journey. At least in, I, I wouldn't count people like Bischoff or anything like that. I wouldn't even count people like Scott Steiner or stuff like that. They only made like one-off appearances and stuff like that. But just people that were part of this journey for the most part. All right. So just before that, I'll just throw out a couple of plugs. Of course, if you've enjoyed this journey so far, there's the best way to show your support is through the Patreon, which is uh, patreon.com slash moment, where you can check out uh, our extra shows that we've done in this journey, where we've reviewed every single SmackDown or pay-per-view from across the journey. So from Vengeance 2002 all the way up to most recently, No Way Out 2003, and we will be doing something involving WrestleMania 19, which we'll discuss at a later date. Uh, but we hope that like giving you this sort of content, it fuels us to be more creative and to put more stuff out there as well. 
And we hope that that is be, would be reflected in you guys appreciating that side of it and maybe thinking that we're worth giving, even if it's just anything from a dollar a month. Obviously, Tony's throwing the gauntlet down a little while ago that if 10 people subscribe at the $5 level, then we will drop the dark cast here. So you'll get to listen to the extra reviews we've done at a lower rate than you currently have to. So I think that's pretty much still half price almost, really. You can you can do it and convince other people to do it. it just It's just a great way to, again, motivate us to do more stuff like this. I mean, me and Rob want to do more retro content, but... Uh, and we will obviously bring a new series down the line as well for free, but we also want to be incentivized to do extra stuff, like especially at the Pick Your Poison tier, $50 gets you just a anything you want us to review, anything at all. Obviously, within reason, we're not going to review every single episode of Smack, every single episode of Raw from 2002 to 2003 just on $50, but want to review a particular show, a particular event, a particular superstar, just look at their history or anything like that. $50 are up, you definitely get... You you get to call the shots essentially. Tell us what you want, and we'll do it. We've been racing. So I think, and here's here's the cool thing about the just giving a dollar. Mm. That would let us know that if you bothered to even give a dollar to this Patreon, that wow, okay, what we're doing resonates. Because it's not about the amount; it really isn't. It's about the knowledge that. Okay, this this is holding weight with some of you, and it would mean the world. So even you know, just a dollar a month would just mean the world because it shows that we are making some kind of an impact. Absolutely, we live we live in a society now where people who put out good content, you wait, basically we reward people for putting out good content. And we do it directly. We don't just. We, we can't just rely on like big companies picking stuff up and doing that sort of things. If you like content, then you should show that sort of things. I mean, me and Rob, we have things that we subscribe to. We probably have people that we support on Patreon and stuff like that. And if you care about those things, then that's the way to show the, the biggest amount of support. And again, like Rob says, the monetary amount doesn't happen. It's just knowing that you're out there and you're enjoying this realistically and obviously you can do that by obviously leaving comments below, liking the video, sharing them around, all the other great stuff. But that's kind of the big Patreon plugs out of the way. So we can talk a little bit more, just round off this episode. It's gone a little bit longer than I anticipated, but there's so much to cover in this entire journey. We've like 40 episodes. It's hard to really just encapsulate in an hour. But let's talk about our fave five and least favourite five. Let's start off with the least because we want to end on a positive note. So, Rob, name... Uh, might go back and forth, see if we... um kind of sync up with some of our things here. So name someone from your least favorite. God bless him, Al Wilson. Oh, it's a good shout for that one. Listen, it's just, it just was too much. Yeah, I think, I think Al would have to go into the least favorite just as an overall consensus between us. Um, I would add, again, I don't don't actually, not God bless him, fuck this guy, Bill DeMott. (laughs) Bill DeMott was one of the lowest points of the series, then I think I would agree that he would be on my least favorite five as well. Uh, anyone else you want to add throwing from your hat? I love Tori Wilson. I think she's great. I think the Divas, they had their place. But the way that she was utilized on this journey, I have to say she was one of my least favorite because it was just like, 
oh shit, it's Thanksgiving. Time to have her wrestling gravy. You know, mm-hmm. it was like, it was just weird. So I'm going to have to throw her in my least favorite five. But she's a, a tremendous person, I'm sure, and deserves all the flowers. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know whether I'd put her in the least five, but again, I'd put, you probably wouldn't put this person that I've got in the least favorite five. Uh, Stephanie McMahon. Oh, no, she's in She's in there. Oh, you put her in the least favorite as well? She's awful. Awful. One of the... For Stephanie McMahon, a character that I genuinely feel is great, and a lot of people can't do the things that she can. Awful. Like, just one of the worst utilizations of this character. They had nothing for her to do after the Bischoff feud. She she turned heel for a week and legitimately blamed it on her menstrual cycle. Like, that, that happened. Stephanie McMahon was uncomfortable in this role and in, in this run. I, I think there were a couple of moments where she had some real good lines and some real. She felt like a strong, like you said, a strong woman in power, a strong, just a strong authority figure in general. She was in moments where she was fair and moments where she did do the right thing, but just some decision making. And again, it's it's the writing surrounding her as well and stuff like that, but. And then again, she was head of creative, so she was kind of kind of a big yeah, part of that. Yeah, she was in well. charge of that. But it's just the idea of like her saying that Kurt Angle and Chris Benoit have to team together, otherwise they'll fire both of them. Like, why would you lose two of your top stars over the fact that they don't like each other and you don't want them to team together? Uh, again, the Scott Steiner stuff, the Bischoff uh, debacle towards the end of it, the uh, Playboy-related stuff. Oh yeah, she's gonna be in Playboy. She's gonna be in Playboy. Just kidding. Like yeah, the brief heel turn where she's going against Brock Lesnar, or she's going like for Kurt Angle, or like when she's like either siding with the Big Show, or she's trying to suspend Brock Lesnar but not suspend Brock Lesnar, or bring him back for no reason or anything like that. Just like because she's the kind of the center point, she's the one that's supposed to be making sense of all the storylines that take place. It puts a lot of emphasis on her, and I don't think she performed to the level that she needed to. And absolutely, I, I would agree with that. Uh, going over to a wrestler, mm-hmm. I have to say, Reverend Devon, I did not. Yeah, His matches were clunky. Uh, by the end of it, it became like he's just in Deadly Boy get up, and he's teaming with for Ron Simmons or, yeah. or Ron Simmons, depending on what they want to call him that week. Mm. It, one of the biggest blunders of the draft. I mean, there's one that I had listed on the initial one, but maybe it's not a great deal of things. We mentioned already Mark Henry. It just, he just, he's just a guy at this point and it just doesn't feel again. Maybe that's a little bit too harsh on him, but it's just, I don't, it just feels like just so much wasted potential. It just feels like a guy that they who's only on the show because first of all, he won that Arnold competition, and second of all, they were stupid enough to sign into a really long contract and can't get rid of him. Yeah, it, Mark Henry took all of that contract, by the way, to finally find something that he was really, really good with. But I think, well, let's see what we've got so far. So we've probably got, I'd say, Al Wilson, we've got Bill Demart, got Reverend Devon. Got Stephanie McMahon. I think we'll leave Tori out. I don't think Tori deserves it. If you if you can only put one of the those three in it, I think you put Al I'd in. Put really. out. I'd put Al. But I think we probably could agree on number five, and it's the Undertaker. 
Undertaker was awful. Undertaker. I would throw the Tracy storyline into any wrestle crap Hall of Fame, anything bashing the that's just the worst of wrestling. Because you, you nearly killed The Undertaker with this run. And I think by the end of it, that's probably why he decided, that, you know what, maybe I need to embrace the dead man again. So that's kind of the uh, the downer in terms of the least favorite. Let's talk about our five favorites. And this could be they're the long list to choose from here. Like, there are so many good <sighs> stuff to talk about. But you want to throw out first one? So... I mean, obviously, I don't think either one of us are going to budge here. It's Kurt Angle. Kind who... of, yeah, he's he is the, I, I, well, I would say the, but he's one of the just shining lights of this entire journey. He's funny. He was aggressive when he needed to be. He had some of the best matches on the entire journey. Yeah, Kurt is one of the greatest of all time. I think one of my favorite things is we caught this journey at the start of him saying... I'm taking off the wig and I'm embracing that I'm bald. And that's when he kicks it into high gear with the wrestling machine stuff. So much fun. Let's talk about Matt Hardy. Oh, Matt Hardy's great. It's so it's hard, right? Because I want to give Matt Hardy a spot here. There's also the, uh, the SmackDown six. Yeah. It's all are, are going to take up you. so much of this. Yeah. Fave five, but Matt Hardy is great, and he does shine through with how much he enjoys developing characters and changing shit up. And I think again, you still see that to this day. Yeah, I think there's again, it's so difficult to put these sort of things. But Matt Hardy was great. Obviously, when you do talk about SmackDown Six, both Guerreros, you probably obviously would lean more towards Eddie because he did more at the start of it and stuff like that. But both of them would have a shout in that side of things. Benoit, Benoit. Obviously, Benoit obviously is a pivotal part of this entire journey. I think you gotta put him on the definitive because not only did he do the SmackDown 6 stuff, but he also wrestled The Rock. And for me, I don't know if you'll put him on, The Rock was such a highlight for this entire journey because he has so many good matches towards the end of his full-time career and I really appreciated watching them. Yeah, I mean, he did really great at the start of it, and he obviously did some really good promo work in the last couple of weeks as well. I mean, Hulk Hogan has to be at least discussed in this regard. Absolutely. And throw what we know out the window for five seconds. Hulk Hogan, in this journey, shines as the Babe Ruth of wrestling. And... People legitimately pop in a journey that saw a lot of audio manipulation. They didn't need to for Hogan because people were going ape shit. It was so much fun watching Hulk Hogan be over, be legitimately over, you know, throughout this entire journey. I was just to mention the the two other members of the SmackDown Six. Do we have them referenced so far? Edge and Rey Mysterio. Rey Mysterio was never better than at the start of this journey, and Edge, who's one of my favorite wrestlers of all time, solidifies his place on the card throughout this journey. One of our obviously underachievers, uh, well, underachievers, overachievers, should I say? Obviously, uh, Jamie Noble. Jamie Noble was off. 
fucking gem. From the ring work to the character work, Jamie Noble might be one of like the last guys to be such a character to where, you know, it's not about what he did on the indies or anything like that. He came in as Nidia's boyfriend and he delivers. We have to mention the work horse of the entire journey, Rikishi. Rikishi he never did so anything good. super stand out, but like he was always there and he always delivered when he needed to. Barring the HLA bit with Stephanie, Rikishi was a gem and a joy to watch. And then we haven't even referenced him, but kind of the guy this whole journey is, well, not so much the journey itself is built around. Well, actually, there's two people we haven't referenced yet. One of them we do build this entire journey around, but the guy who was kind of at the forefront of this type thing, Brock Lesnar. Yeah, Brock Lesnar. It was so much fun going back. To watch him do actual matches. Yeah, and watch him like be an actual performer. It's underrated how good Brock Lesnar is. It's underappreciated. It's under-discussed. Brock Lesnar set... He... How do I put this? He has like a path all his own. He comes in and for 24 months to the day, to the day, he just runs through WWE and owns everything. And it's such a fun time. And then obviously the guy who this whole series is built around, Paul Heyman. Paul Heyman as a character you forget how good and how animated he can be because we're so used to the advocate wise kind of cunning lawyer that he's become you forget that he's just a good heel wrestling manager and on top of that he's creative and yeah there were flaws and i pointed them out but he also gave us so much to enjoy and i respect the hell out of paul hammond yeah, so try and pick five out of that. Uh, that's a that's about like probably about ten, a dozen names that we picked out there. But I would say, and we I mean, we won't come up with like a universal one because again, it's all subjective and stuff like that. But in my mind, the top five is Angle. At least from my this again, this is a favorite personal preference. It's not like saying like these were definitely the the best five. It's just personal preference. Kurt Angle, Brock Lesnar, Paul Heyman, Matt Hardy. And I would go out of the other choices. I mean, there's oh, so many choices, but I would go Eddie. It's just because, and again, that's that's me going it's, with Eddie because it's Eddie. But I think he was it, really intense. I love the stuff that he did early on with the Latino Heat stuff, and he's transitioning now into the Viva La Rasa stuff. And he was erratic in matches and stuff like that, but I thought that was just, it's endearing almost. I love his um, promo work as well, but obviously I don't expect your five to be the same, but. I imagine there will obviously be serious crossovers. I would say Brock Lesnar, Kurt Angle, Edge, Eddie Guerrero, and God. Ugh, it's so hard, but I, I'm i going to say, because I didn't expect it, I'm going to give that final nod to The Rock. Just because he had such a fun start to this whole journey and it really and then at the end of it too he comes back and kind of gives us some great character work so credit very much to the rock no yeah i'm totally fine with that as well i mean i would say that the the one that's kind of on standby for me is hogan just because 
he didn't do much in the ring, but when he was there, but he was the biggest deal. So it kind of feels like that. But yeah, this was again. It's it was a fun journey because we enjoy it. It's it's something that we've already appreciated as far as like. I, I guess I'll ask like probably the most definitive question of this entire journey. Did going back in time to this again is is a weird way of saying it, but did this ruin what you thought of this journey, what you thought of this period of history beforehand, or did it enhance it for you? <sighs> or somewhere so, in the middle. It's it's definitely somewhere in the middle. Cause obviously, like when you were a kid, you don't like it doesn't register how see certain things are but at the same time you don't appreciate how much they got out of so little so ultimately i'm gonna say it enhanced because it really showed how much is missing from today's product and surprisingly that answer is not just oh it's pushing a live crowd <laughs> no like that there's some just storyline elements that have just been lost to time and i think that's a shame no i totally agree i think that for me it's it's very hard in the direction of enhancing the experience for me because over time i've come to appreciate obviously there were things during this period which we were illogical or just like just flat out bad or cd as we've mentioned beforehand mm-hmm. but i feel like going back and watch this especially with what wrestling is now and i say wrestling i mean wwe as i say i'm I'm ashamed aew mark and i won't say anything about it or anything like that and love new japan for the most part until they ruined it last year or stuff like that but but with wwe it's just going back and watching this it feels like i don't want to leave this like I did, we did this originally just for nostalgia purposes it was a period of history that we both adore and we thought it would be a lot of fun and it was Funny enough, at the start of this journey, Paul Heyman was the head of Raw, and he left it before this journey even started airing. Yeah. That's how that's how things change now in WWE, but it's just a case of... just You want to go back to feeling like you felt watching this. And I don't know what it's going to make... It hasn't made me hate the product more nowadays. Maybe it should. But, I don't, but at the moment, I don't hate the product that's going out there. I'm completely ambivalent towards it i don't i think that that's worse no it it is i really do and like it's gone past the point like maybe three or four years ago i would have just hated it and i did used to say stuff on podcasts and stuff like that about how i hated stuff like that and now i i still sometimes try and do it but it's more me trying to force an emotion out when i don't actually care because what's the point of caring i agree whereas you watch this one and i get i got upset with like stupid bits of booking and things like that but that's because i enjoyed so much of it that i when i saw something that was bad it made me annoyed because like i know how good this can be and i kind of wanted to like it felt like i was living it again and i was living it from a completely different perspective a perspective where i could appreciate the good and i could criticize the bad and i could be like i wish not it's not the case like i wish wrestling was like this because it was better I wish wrestling was like this because I would be invested in it. Like, yeah, and even if I it was, think... Even if it was, yeah, even if it was like a lot of it was bad, there were some really bad episodes on this journey. Like, there was some stuff that I just really didn't want to watch. But it made me feel... It, like, I cared about commenting about it. I cared about critiquing it. Like, I wanted to... 
I felt like if I was criti- would critique it or obviously I wouldn't feel like I was influencing the decisions being changed and stuff like that. But I feel like I'd be invested in like, are they going to fix that the next episode or are they going to, is it going to go in a diff- different direction or something like that? Just, just something in my mind makes me go back to this thing and feel like I'm so glad that I wasn't the age I am now watching it because it wouldn't be as fun because just it's so much more fun when you're watching it as a kid. There's no stakes attached to it. But right. I also feel like I wish I was this age watching a product which is similar to that now. It's really yeah. weird analogy and stuff like that, but it's just... I do wonder a lot about the the state of WWE if I was younger, you mm. know? And would I, like... Would you love The Fiend and stuff like that? Like, would I think, like, oh, so much of this stuff is so great because look at how good the ring work is. Or if it's just, you know, look, they're not, they're not producing stars. And I'm going to go back to what I said, because this journey really does point it out. You don't book things for the sake of booking them. When WWE back then booked Edge and Eddie Guerrero in a street fight, it was legitimately the end of a rivalry that had been going on for two months. And they didn't say oh, the rivalry's over, but since they're in these tag feuds, here's Edge versus Eddie Guerrero another seven times on TV. No, they never fought again in a singles match. Uh, it's, it's really weird on this journey if you ever saw a match which had no, like, story attached to it. And maybe the match itself in its own, like, little bubble doesn't have a story attached to it, but it's, it, it, one of the wrestlers is involved in a story or involved in a rivalry that connects to it in some way, some form or fashion. Like there was okay. always there was always some sort of narrative going on. You wouldn't just see, oh, let's just throw on, I don't know. I mean, to be fair, like you, you do see things like, I don't know, from the most recent episode of Raw or something like that, where you got like uh, Xavier Woods against Shelton Benjamin. I guess that's that's quite unquote leading to onto a tag team title match. So I guess that's part of it. But it's just it feels just so okay. We got this week. Let's put this match on. And it's like, what can you say? It's just so frustrating and deflating and that's and it makes this era go wow you know they were able to book rivalries and feuds that didn't overstay their welcome like i I would argue maybe the don marie and tori wilson stuff did oh yeah that's also because at the end of the day you have to get you know women on the card and they were the two women on smackdown Listen, listen. There weren't things there again. There were things that weren't perfect on this film. What you mentioned is stuff that we didn't like throughout it. And I would even go to far saying that they overdid the Kurt Angle Chris Benoit stuff. They shouldn't have had as many matches as they did. But there's a difference when you have Kurt Angle versus Chris Benoit is that the certain people will just watch their matches day in day out and not feel any issue with it whatsoever. But it's just a case of you can overdo things. You can give us too much of a good thing. But right. I think for the most part they managed to use what roster they had. And let's put it this way, they had a smaller roster then than they do now. And the, and yet it feels like they're using more of it. And they're making most of all of it a bit more in this period of time than they w- would be nowadays. Because again, I think that there was a focus on maximizing, you know, and getting the most out of what you have rather than having a lot and just, you know, oh, well. The, it's great because look at how much there is. It's it's quality versus quantity, and this definitely provides quality over quantity. 
And let's put it this way. Obviously, we're ending the journey here. This doesn't last. <laughs> it doesn't last. Like, it, with, I would say within a year, two years, like, SmackDown's considered... It's still a lot better than it is nowadays, but it's like, it's still, it gets considerably worse year on year. I would agree with that. In like 2003, it's underlined with the, like, say, the angle, uh, the angle, Lesnar, big show stuff. You get to see a bit more of, like, this is where the rise of John Cena kind of starts in earnest, because even though we've seen him now, that still has the formative stages. This is when Cena becomes a big deal. You get to see, but then, like, in 2004, you have Eddie on top, and obviously, I loved Eddie Guerrero, happy that he was WWE champion, but. That's when ratings start to go down. Then you put JBL in and they start to absolutely plummet. You have yeah. the Undertaker back, but that's like... They don't run with them. Yeah, they don't, yeah, they don't give them the belt or anything like that. It's where you get like trades coming in of like the Dudley boys coming in and Booker T and Rob Van Dam for a little while. And it's just... I don't know. It just... Just year on year, it feels less and less important. And maybe that's just the general malaise that infected WWE post-Attitude Era. But I think we hit it... When we when we cover this period, we're hitting it at the, the right time. Like, this is you, the time to be watching SmackDown. No, I want to put this out there. I'm not suggesting that this is the journey that we should take. Mm-hmm. But do you think that it's gotten so bad right now that we can look back at... Let's say if we just did a one-shot thing, we just cover the whole Nexus angle. Would it look better? That comparison to today's product. I mean, it's hard to look worse. I feel like I would still find that worse because it's just so much wasted potential in one thing. Like the next thing in particular is just a case of that was that was the chance to almost turn their fortunes around. Maybe it wasn't. Like, maybe I'm overselling it in that regard, but it felt like it was something that could change their fortunes around. And the fact they didn't do it makes me feel worse than right now when they're just, like, spinning their wheels. It's just like, they actually had something then, and then they decided to purposely sabotage it, almost. Rather than, right. oh, we've got no plans, but, like, we're just going to keep doing this for the time being. Obviously, that is... That's infuriating, because you, you, you just start becoming very apathetic towards things. But I'd rather that than just looking at an angle which could have been so much money and so brilliant for everyone involved and just they threw it away. That's more infuriating to me than the other way around. Like, I I just wonder if even back then we'd look at it and go, hey, you know, they had stars still because you still had at least Cena. And now they don't even have that. And that's the thing that I think kills me. Because, like, Roman is great. But Roman is going to be like the next in a long line of, well, he's a step down from John, who is a step down from Rock. Even though I, I, I think in hindsight, John's right on the level. Now that his career is over, I think he's right on the level with a lot of the main faces in WWE. But like ultimately, at least in this journey... When you had a cavalcade of stars, it was a good cavalcade of stars. As opposed to, like, you know, what we have now where it's just, okay, we're going to throw everybody out there. And we're going to tell you that this abundance means more than actually creating superstars. 
so yeah that's pretty much the end of the journey now we've gone for a over t- well pretty much over two hours at this point uh by the end of it we will definitely have gone over two hours so it's just been oh, the doggy super excited about the ending of this <laughs> the, the dog is popping for the end of the journey or maybe the dog is telling us not to end the journey maybe you well, never know. Well, the dog has to be disappointed then, unfortunately. So. I guess so. <laughs> we, can't, we can't go any further with this one. We do have other stuff in the pipeline. I don't want to reveal anything just yet because plans, obviously, card subject to change and all that other stuff, depending on what we have access to going to forward. Change. <laughs> yeah, obviously. And, uh, but yeah, we will be bringing you more retro stuff down the line because we enjoy doing it. And if we enjoy doing it, we're going to put it out there and hopefully you guys enjoy doing it. Like, as, as we just can tell from the way we just ended that you don't want us reviewing a lot of current stuff nowadays or more than we need to and we don't want to be doing that as well so but we, we want to well, and you to. can check all of that out at smartgoverment.com yeah absolutely you can do all that stuff still have all the um extra stuff going along we're going to take a little bit of a break from the retro stuff while we just strategically plan so you won't be seeing something immediately coming up next saturday or anything along those lines what we will be bringing you soon, though, is WrestleMania 19, a special review of that, because it's a great show. And if you have the opportunity to review it, then you have to. It's basically a law. Absolutely. And we're getting Tony involved because Tony's never seen it from start to finish. So we need to do that to him because he deserves it. He deserves good wrestling. He does. He really does. And so we'll cover that. We're maybe, like, we've had a few discussions about doing that as a live stream, a live watch along. Maybe even with like like webcams or anything along those lines, just so we can just sit down, shoot the shit, enjoy a four hour show with you guys. We won't put that behind. Um, if we go that route, we won't put it behind a paywall or anything like that because this WrestleMania 19, we can end the journey. Is there a good wrestling too? Honestly. Yeah, exactly. So we'll see what we can do with that. And at least, um, but at least by Peacock standards, all WrestleManias are going to be on the network straight away or on the Peacock version of the network straight away. So as long as they keep that promise, we're all good. But uh, that, that's what the future holds. Obviously, you've mentioned the Patreon already. Other ways you can support us, Redbubble and Public. That's the merchandise shop. So pick up some Smart Cat Moment merchandise from there. Check out smartcatmoment.com, all the articles discussing the current product and all the little features, the triple threats, the uh, battle of the brands, all this, all this other great stuff. We put the, things going out every single week. I do the power rankings. It's all good there. Social media, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Smart Count Moments. Join the Mega Maniacs, facebook.com slash group slash the Mega Maniacs, where you can just interact with wrestling fans, share a meme or two every now and again. Fanboysanonymous.com is where Tony does all the geek culture stuff. We're obviously doing the Review to a Kill podcast where myself, Rob and Tony are going through every single James Bond movie, leaving our thoughts and opinions on those, having a lot of fun in the process. But you can follow them, like go to the website, fanboysanonymous.com, follow them on Facebook, on Twitter, sign up for their Patreon, Redbubble, TeePublic, all that great stuff. Rob? Yes, and you can check me out at Fightful.com. Every single day of the week, as we ramp up to the road to WrestleMania and everything we've got going on there, you can check out everything with Fightful Select and, as Callum mentioned, Fanboys Anonymous and all the good stuff we have going on there. And you can follow me on Twitter at DudeFelice. And we thank you again for coming on this tremendous journey.
Yeah, absolutely. I just yeah, as the as a final thank you for it, was he said at the start of the podcast, but just want to reiterate that it's a real it it really warms my heart to hear when people like put good comments and stuff like that about how they've enjoyed this journey. We enjoy bringing it to you. It's nice to put some weight off Tony's shoulders, add a bit more content to the web to the um to the pro- channel in general, get to go over some retro stuff. It's so much fun for us. And so we appreciate anyone who's joined us for this entire journey. Whether you stayed for one episode, you stayed for all 38, 39, however many there were in the end. But if you stayed for all of them, then obviously you're the real OGs and we really support you for it. Really thank you for supporting us at the very least. Um, and yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Wigmeister14. And Rob, any final any final thoughts before we sign off for the last time here? Uh, the Ruthless Aggression era is severely underplayed. And this journey let me see just how good WWE still was. I think there was a narrative that when the Monday Night War ended, wrestling was bad immediately. And this era and this journey proves that entirely wrong. Absolutely. I, I think I can wholeheartedly agree with that. So that's it for us for now, for a short period of time at least. But we will be back and better than ever. But for now, this has been another Smile Count moment, and we are being counted out.